Bathana by Jean Wolfe When Zaz, whom from the pit had licked his fur clean, he howled before John Bonanno's door. John's wife, Teresa, opened it and let him in. She was a thin, stooped woman of thirty or thirty-five, her black hair shot with gray. She did not smile, but he felt somehow that she was glad to see him. She said, He's not home yet. If you want to come in, we've got a fire. Zaz said, I'll wait for him, and six-legging politely across the threshold, sat down over the stone Bananas had rolled in for him when they were new friends. Maria and Mark, playing some sort of game with beer bottle caps on squares scratched on the floor dirt, said, Hi, Uncle Zaz. And Zaz said, Hi, in return. Bananas' old mother, whom Zaz had brought here from the, from the pads in his rusty power wagon, the day before looked at him with piercing eyes, then fled into the other room. He could hear Teresa relax, the wheezing outpuffed breath. He said half-humorously, I think she thinks I bumped her on purpose yesterday. She's not used to you yet. I know, Zaz said. I told her, Mother Bonanno, it's their world and they're not used to you. Sure. Zaz said. A gust of wind outside brought the cold in to replace the odor of the gog hutch on the other side of the left wall. I tell you, it's hell to have your husband's mother with you in a place as small as this. Sure, Zaz said again. Maria announced, Daddy's home! The door rattled open and Bananas came in looking tired and cheerful. Bananas worked in the slaughtering market, and though his cheeks were blue and cold, the cuffs of his trousers were red with blood. He kissed Teresa and tousled the hair of both children and said, Hey, Zazie! Zaz said, Hi, how does it roll? And moved over so Bananas could warm his back. Someone groaned and Bananas asked a little anxiously, What's that? Teresa said, Next door. Huh? Next door, some woman. Oh, I thought it might be Mom. She's fine. Where is she? In back. Bananas frowned. There's no fire in there. She'll freeze to death. I didn't tell her to go back there. She can wrap a blanket around her. Zaz said, It's me. I bother her. He got up. Bananas said, Sit down. I can go. I just came to say hi. Sit down. Bananas turned to his wife. Honey, you shouldn't leave her in there alone. See if you can't get her to come out. Johnny. Teresa, damn it. Okay, Johnny. Bananas took off his coat and sat down in front of the fire. Maria and Mark had gone back to their game. In a voice too low to attract their attention, Bananas said, Nice thing, huh? Zaz said, I think your mother makes her nervous. Bananas said, Sure. Zaz said, This isn't an easy world. You mean for us? No, it ain't. But you don't see me moving. Zaz said, That's good. I mean, here you've got a job anyway. There's work. That's right. Unexpectedly, Maria said, We get enough to eat here, and me and Mark can find wood for the fire. Where we used to be, there wasn't anything to eat. Banana said, You remember, honey? A little. Zaz said, People are poor here. Bananas was taking off his shoes, scraping the street mud from them and tossing it into the fire. He said, If you mean us, us people are poor everywhere. He jerked his head in the direction of the back room. You ought to hear her tell about our world. Your mother? Bananas nodded. Maria said, Daddy, have a grandmother come here. Same way we did. Mark said, You mean she signed a thing? 
A labor contract? No, she's too old. She bought a ticket. You know, like you would buy something in a store. Maria said, that's what I mean. Shut up and play. Don't bother us. Zaz said, how things go at work? So-so. Bananas looked toward the back room again. She came into some money, but that's her business. I didn't want to talk to the kids about it. Sure. She says she spent every dollar to get here, you know. They haven't used dollars even on Earth for 50, 60 years, but she still says it. How do you like that? He laughed, and Zaz laughed, too. I asked how she was going to get back, and she said she's not going back. She's going to die right here with us. What can I say? I don't know. Zaz waited for Bananas to say something, and when he did not, he added, I mean, she's your mother. Yeah. Through the thin wall, they heard the sick woman groan again, and someone moving about. Zaz said, I guess it's been a long time since you last saw her. Yeah, 22 years, Newtonian. Listen, Zazie, uh-huh. You know something? I wish I had never set eyes on her again. Zaz said nothing, rubbing his hands, hands, hands. That sounds lousy, I guess. I know what you mean. She could have lived good for the rest of her life on what that ticket cost her. Bananas was silent for a moment. She used to be a big fat woman when I was a kid, you know? great big woman with a loud voice. Look at her now, dried up and bent over. It's like she wasn't my mother at all. You know, the only thing that's the same about her? That black dress. That's the only thing I recognize. The only thing that hasn't changed. She could be a stranger. She tells stories about me I don't remember at all. Maria said she told us a story today. Mark added, before you came home, about this witch. Maria said, that brings the presents to children. Her name is La Bifana, the Christmas witch. Zaz drew his lips back from his double canines and jiggled his head. I like stories. She says it's almost Christmas, and on Christmas, three wise men went looking for the baby, and they stopped at the old witch's door, and they asked which way it was, and she told him, and they said, come with us. The door to the other room opened, and Teresa and Bananas's mother came out. Bananas's mother was holding a tea kettle. She edged around Zaz to put it on the hook and swing it out over the fire. And she was sweeping and she wouldn't come, Mark said. She said she'd come when she was finished. She was a real old, real ugly woman. Watch, I'll show you how she walked. He jumped up and began to hobble around the room. Bananas looked at his wife and indicated the wall. What's this? In there. The charity place. They said she could stay there. She couldn't stay in the house because all the rooms are full of men. Maria was saying. So when she was all done, she went looking for him, only she couldn't find him, and she never did. She's sick? She's knocked up, Johnny, that's all. Don't worry about her. She's got some guy in there with her. Mark asked. Do you know about the baby Jesus, Uncle Zaz? Zaz broke for words. Giovanni, my son. Yes, Mama. Your friend. Do they have the faith? Giovanni. Apropos of nothing, Teresa said, they're Jews next door. Zaz told Mark, you see, the baby Jesus never came to my world. Maria said, and so it go, and so she goes all, o- all over every place looking for him with her presence, and she leaves some with every kid she finds. But she says it's not because she thinks they might be him, like some people think, but just a substitute. She can never die. She has to do it forever, doesn't she, Grandma? The bent old woman said, Not forever, dearest. Only until tomorrow night.
Happy holidays, everyone. Here's a ghost poem from Laos entitled Five Flavors by Brian Tower. Five Flavors. On a good day, a good Lao meal can be all you need, whether in Cairo or Sacramento, Minnetonka or Asahi. So many hungry ghosts in our traditions make me ask, don't they feed you in the underworld? Be gongoi, be kasu, and be yavam. Be bed, be bop, be dip, and more. Just a fraction of those legendary for the paranormal appetites. It may surprise you, the hungriest of all can't eat more than vapors during punkao patatin, wrapped pity strewn about the ground by strangers who understand the regular routines of hell. I suppose we should be grateful. Most red-mouthed bee who kill will make a full meal of you, sap, wasting little, barely a drop. At the Sabaidi Thai Grill, if you ask nicely, Madame Bualai and Chef Dai Tafon might make a special dish of tamakun, atomic and dirty. The doctor and I don't have the guts to try. Visiting our Nissan break from the university, we settle for coffee and talk of the old country, our land of smiling mysteries we're not meant to know. Some are benign. If you sleep among the black gibbons of Bokeo, a simian peepong crown fastened by might catch you to slowly lick salt from your big toe. Nothing more. Hardly fearsome, but ponder, why just the salt? Or what would really happen if you interrupt? Maybe you'll see the young pea kapun as a sweet pea, weeping by her banyan tree, selling soup to strangers. Alas, her vermicelli is always cold as a dead white worm. But you can taste a marvelous hint of mint, green as jade, juice from coconuts pale as a ghost's forgotten bones, and red, red curry, reminding you of doting meh. Be kind, tip a few extra keep, it's how she's spending her afterlife. Certain spirits are sour as a mango of gel, or cling to tall, tall trees, slender as a dried man full of mischief, letting down their hair from twisted branches, daring you to touch beneath a full moon when monks and babies aren't watching. Some come after you for eating the flesh of pregnant animals, others for breaking a law, a rule older than humanity you can't possibly know. But when the wind blows just right, they'll remind you. There's probably none more bitter than a jilted pea titong quam, peeved at the world, her unborn baby in tow, more bile than screaming hot bowl of genkilek, big as your head. Never suggest she brought it on herself. Pet is a subjective continuum of heart. A drunk coot once ate a cell at more peppers than papaya, sixty plus or so, and lived. It was unreal to witness. They say certain elder spirits come as a tiny fireball, drifting through the night like a dandelion seed, slipping past your snoring nips without a sound to dine, your innards tastier than a volcanic bingai. They'll wear you like a tipsy puppet between furtive bites, appraise your children and loved ones for the next meal, inviting them closer, closer, smiling warm. My niece leans in to hear how you stop any of them. Born in America, she thinks there's a solution for everything. Silver bullets, a stake, a prayer, a bit of water or fire, running an oddball errand. I hug her for her optimism and simply tell her, we'll pay this time. Over her objections, I remind her, everyone gets their turn.
Old Red Eye by R. Turner. Like most kids, Christmas time was pretty darn magical for me. Colorful strings of lights, decorated trees, and of course, mysteries wrapped in festive paper and ribbons. Every year on Christmas Eve, Grandpa would sit in his rocking chair, puff on his pipe, and tell a story of his own childhood. It was always the same story. It was always started at 9.35 p.m. This is the story he told. When I wore the clothes of a younger man, all of his stories began this way, my own grandfather lived in a small house a few miles away from my parents. Every year on Christmas Eve, my parents would send me over to visit with him, perhaps to get me out of the house for a little while, or perhaps to check up on a lonely old man. Either way, just before the sun went down, off I went. The visits themselves were usually without note or event. We would sit next to the pot-bellied stove and drink eggnog. He always made two batches, one for me and one for himself. The latter, as I would find out when I was 13, was mostly bourbon. It wasn't this discovery, surprised as I was, that made this particular visit stand out in my memory. At this point, he would always pause and puff solemnly on his pipe as if he were trying to rip the tail from the fog of time. Grandpa always had a flair for the dramatic. I had said my goodbyes and stood on my grandfather's porch, cheeks warm from a few secret nips of the special eggnog. Though I could navigate the way between the two houses blindfolded and walking backward, my mother always insisted that I carried a small lantern. As a dutiful son, I carried it and used it. I struck a match and lit the wick. The circle of sickly light was pretty much useless for seeing anything that wasn't a couple of steps ahead. But it was better than nothing on that night. It started to snow while Grandpa and I were sitting by the fire. Now his yard was covered in a pristine layer of white that stretched to the shadows of the trees. Flakes fell at a steady rate, and the only sound I could hear was the faint tapping of the snowflakes coming to rest atop their kin. I took a deep breath and pulled my coat tighter around me. Then I stepped into the silent night. I did not get too far before a strange feeling swept over me. It's hard to describe this many years on. It was just odd. I suppose you could say that it was like I had entered another world one that overlapped with familiar environs. I stopped for a moment at the old sycamore that marked the halfway point in my journey, a behemoth of a tree that I would climb in warmer weather. In the depths of winter, naked of its foliage, it looked like the hand of a giant skeleton prying itself from an earthly tomb. On reflection, it was a beautiful sight, but at that moment, the only thing on my mind was that I had to pee. I hung the lantern on a low bough and stepped slightly into the shadows for some privacy. Not that I had anything but in the middle of the woods. I did my business, watching the steam rise from the hole in the snow I bored with the remnants of my naughtiness. As I finished and grabbed the lantern to continue home was the first time I saw it. A large black shape moving through the shadows. Dark against dark. Little more than something familiar solitary deer, obscured by bourbon, I thought. Out of some primal instinct, I picked up the pace 
It was hard to determine how long I had been on the road, but felt that it had been too long. Before I realized it, I was sprinting. I would like to say that my booze-addled young mind thought I was late for something, but the truth is that I was scared to death, a fear that I would soon find out was completely warranted. I paused again, panting. My breath formed a halo of thick vapor around my head, and a chill worked its way through me. The lantern's tiny circle of light flickered in time with my shivers. Its handle squeaked like a field mouse caught by a cat. It was then that I heard it behind me, soft footsteps on the snow. One, two, three, four. The hair on the back of my neck stood on end, and my, my, my spine went stiff as a board. I took a tentative step forward and heard a single step in response. The full moon pierced through the clouds at that very moment, and I turned my head slowly to look over my shoulder, and I saw it. Large, shaggy, the outward appearance of a dog or wolf, blacker than the deepest shadows. It took another step forward, moving like an animated shadow. Its most striking feature were the eyes red and glowing like the fires of hell. It took another step toward me and issued a low growl that shook the snow off of nearby branches and the very ground on which I stood. At that moment I did the only thing that any reasonable person could. I ran like my ass was on fire and didn't stop until I collided with the front door of my parents' house. Now get your asses to bed. My grandfather never said what happened after or if he ever encountered the creature again. But some lonely nights, when I'm up late, I swear I see, in the periphery, a pair of red eyes staring through the window.